I mean, you've heard you sort of sit at senior management level and you'd say, I, I suggest that we do that now. Uh, and what I'd find and what I've found since is that it's been done in other clubs or other organisations. And that, you look back and you think, that's frustrating because I found that 20 months ago. And not only have they done it, they're now experiencing results and tangible benefits from it. Because I remember going into one particular high-performing football club. I went around three, four departments. They'd share certain things and I went in one particular department and it was a complete brick wall. Uh, and, and this was in the realms of artificial intelligence. We had manufacturers from all over the world sending us balls, goals, bibs, cones. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, 80-90% of it was rubbish. So Dave Horrocks, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. How did football become part of your life? Ooh, great question. Uh, I loved it as a kid, really. Um, my dad was into sport. He worked for a local company, uh, industrial automotive company called Lucas. They were one of the biggest manufacturers of car parts. And back then in the 70s, uh, you, you work tended to provide for sport. Uh, it, it was a big company that had a social club, sports grounds, cricket teams, football teams, darts, snooker, pretty much everything. And he, even as a four or five-year-old, I just used to follow him around, uh, watch him play football, watch him play cricket, get involved. Um, I then took to it at school, at junior school, and probably walked around with a ball at my feet all winter, and a cricket bat under my arm all summer <laughs> through my formative years, really, and uh, and just fell in love with it. How did that intrinsic drive come about? Then you mentioned your upbringing. Was that very influential in terms of you having a career within the sporting industry? I think so, yeah, because we, we were always around people who were playing sport, so I was sort of socialised in that type of environment. And then I'd watch it as well. I, I was lucky enough. Uh, we're from Burnley. Um, Burnley was the first football match that I ever went to. Uh, but my dad would always get tickets to watch the best as well. And then it was Liverpool. Uh, mid to late 70s, they were dominating. And uh, he took us over to Anfield quite a few times to watch the best players. We went to Manchester United as well. He even took us to Southampton once to watch uh, Kevin Keegan, one of the best players in the world at the time. And cricket as well, he'd take us to watch sort of local Lancashire League clubs, which were quite high profile then. In the Lancashire League, you'd people such as Viv Richards, Shane Warne, Mark War, some big names playing local cricket. And that just inspired me, really, to sort of, well, you want to be one of them. Uh, you go out with the ball under your arm every time you play football you're dreaming of the cup final yeah and that's just driven an energy in me uh, from an early age six seven and I'm 51 now and it's still there in all honesty so how did the discipline of psychology come about then so if you're exposed to mm. watching football and then your, your, your academic journey and, and educating yourself within sport why psychology? Why did that become apparent in comparison to maybe other areas that are... That came late. Uh, so I was a mature student. And as I went through school systems, uh, I was pretty good at sport, represented the school, the town, the county at certain sports, uh, mainly athletics, cricket and football. But joined in anything, uh, swimming goalers, that type of thing. I could pretty much turn my hand to anything. And... I wanted a career in sport and it got to the point where you think, well, football's the one that you're probably best at. Uh, and I got opportunities and trials within a few clubs and played some youth games, reserve games, uh, but didn't make it ultimately. So you end up at a stage in life, 19, 20 years old, wondering what you're going to do. And a lot of my friends did go on to make it. Uh, some of them you could see that happening in all honesty they were great players at an early age but then some people who went on to have good careers Premier League careers as well weren't in my eyes that good uh, 
and you'd get selected above them for certain town or representative teams. And then you reflect back on that when you're not in the game and think, how has that happened? How, how did they get there? How did others get there? What is it all about? What was missing? What What is it that stopped me from getting there? And I found some people that sort of got spat out of the, uh, the football system quite bitter about it. We, we talked about identity earlier and they then don't have anything to do with football uh, and they resent being in the system. And I just thought, I'm quite intrigued to explore the difference between them. Uh, and you've got what probably at a young age, the obvious thing, scoring more goals, being able to pass it better, more consistently, etc. But I felt there was probably a human element to it as well. And there wasn't a great deal in psychology specific to football out there at the time. So I thought, I'm going to explore this. And, I, and I'd started doing coaching badges as well. Uh, what was a preliminary coaching badge back then, which is sort of level two, I think, now. And the coaching wasn't the thing that fascinated me. When I was on early coaching courses, I thought, well, it's quite simple, really, to organise a defensive unit or to tell someone the mechanics of how to pass a ball or to run with one. What was striking me was the interaction of the group on the coaching course. And how certain people could get more out of a group on a coaching course as opposed to the next person who's coaching, yet the players are the same. And that's probably an epiphany moment. That's kind of the eureka in the bath type thing for me. I'm thinking, this is actually about people. It's not about players. Because it's probably, I don't know, 20 coaches on the course. Players are the same, but the sessions were randomly and vastly different um, and I'd gone into it wanting to be a coach because I couldn't be a player. And that took me to Open University uh, and I did a, I think it was a 20, 30 credit course introduction to social sciences. And I thought I'd just explore the academic world because I didn't do that well at school. Uh, I got six GCSEs, which was not a disaster, but not what your class is fulfilling your potential. So I had to go back, uh, and that's what I did. And I plodded away at Open University probably for about two years. Um, and I got to a point where I was enjoying it. Uh, I wanted to explore more. So another sort of twist of fate happened, and I transferred to the University of Central Lancashire as a full-time student, ultimately, and just continued exploring people. Yeah. Or do you think there's a little bit of a stigma around kind of that psychological element? And I think from what you've said, that self-awareness is, is being the catalyst for your growth within this area. Or do you think there's maybe a lack of awareness of those implications and the fixation of, you mentioned defensive units and tactics and everything that's related around that. It seems to be a little bit of a limitation towards the area. You mentioned lack of research. Why? Uh, I think there was a lack of research specific to the sport and, and I found this when I started the academic studies because you, you'd read research papers when you're doing your literature reviews or you, you're trying to develop a knowledge of the area and I found a lot of the things that were peer-reviewed and published were passing themselves off as we did a study with elite footballers and when you look into it, it might be a Category 3 European country, Division 2 and you sort of think, Mm. And the more you explore, the less I find that was from the highest levels. So I then understood why the highest levels would discount what was out there, because there were academics in, mainly probably sports scientists at that point in time, uh, coaching specialists just sort of coming through. So I understood quite quickly why there was probably a reticence to accept academia into the professional world of sport, uh, because the, for want of a better word to choose an old fashioned coaching term what did they know about it and what I was reading proved that they didn't know a great deal about it in all honesty uh, and that has changed over the last 10-20 years there's no doubt about that well that's what I saw when I first went in mm. again I was speaking to, to other guests on this podcast and they mentioned sometimes theory cannot be transferred into culture and they mentioned that there's different facets that 
you have to experience the culture to get to understand why things might happen. Do you, do you sense that's kind of similar in what you're saying there? It helps. Uh, there's no doubt that it helps because when I was reading things, I'm thinking, I've been in there, I've been in that dressing room where I've played in that game and that is not what it looks like. And you'd possibly get someone describing characteristics and I'd think some of it's okay, but some of it's missing here. There are other things that have not been catered for. And when you look at culture and, and behaviours and perhaps the dynamic of the interaction of the environment, some of the ways it was described was unreadable to a layman or a coach because academics have one language yeah. and the general population has another. And football and sport tended to be the general population and the working class, really, from my experience. So there, there was a clash here. The, the information wasn't being translated. And there were certain things that academics were picking up that were right, you know, don't get me wrong, and good, but they wanted more development and it was probably too sterile like too sterile or too controlled an environment in terms of what the research process looked like yeah and again that's changed how did this passion grow then so you mentioned getting your qualifications and uclan and open university and then you get the opportunity to to really start getting your getting uh, mucky with this and getting yeah. in, into the deep end with with obviously some of the things that you might have experienced previously and how that might relate to, to modern soccer players. Tell us about what you did kind of after that period in terms of your education and then applying that into practice. I think the sports person comes out in you even when you're in a different world. Uh, and I spent 10 years in the technology sector as a salesman. Uh, and you, you still want to win in everything that you do. And I still play an amateur football. Yeah. Uh, and still running, and I never ever went into a football match or ran a race without thinking or believing I could win it. And then you look at academia and you see a paper that you don't quite agree with. You think, well, I'm going to write one that's better than that. <laughs> and then as you progress and you, I sort of move from introduction to social sciences with OU to UCLAM, you get competitive with your marks as well. And I struggled at first. I was in the sort of mid-40s to 50s. And when I get a mark like that, I'm sort of, I'm better than that. So you, you literally adopt the sporting process. You go back to the coach. So I'd go back to the academic and say, well, I've got 55. Why? And how do I make it 60? So you, you're operating the same feedback loop that you are as a coach or a footballer to improve. And then you get to 60, you get to 65, you get to 70, you get to 70, you think, oh, that's a first. I'm in a bracket now, so you want to stay in that bracket. So the competitive edge drives you on. And I went to uni to become a better coach. I ended up um, getting a first-class degree. I got the highest mark in the cohort in psychology in that particular year, which got me a scholarship to do a PhD. And my degree studies were published in uh, The Psychologist, which was the industry magazine for the BPS, British Psychological Society. So I'd got that feeling of, of winning in academia and you just want more of it, really. So you keep going and it's and as I've gone through the studies and you, you retrospectively then understand that the traits of wanting to win or addiction in becoming a footballer then start to manifest themselves in academia yeah. and they've done the same in business as I've moved into business. So there's an underlying thing there that consistently keeps coming out. What did you learn from your PhD? Um, phew, what a great question. Uh, never been asked that one before. The biggest thing it, as you get further in academia is the seriously heavy amount of feedback and, and opinion that you get. You sort of think football is difficult. That I find really difficult in terms of the amount of comments. Uh, but then also there was the, what I now sort of, I mean, I'm out of it now, but there's this conform, conforming to 
a world <clears throat> where you have to write something to suit what their world wants. And I have three or four papers out there. Um, they're good, they get read, uh, they still get picked up now, but they're not the papers I wrote, if that makes sense. Um, because you have to change the language, you have to change the content, you have to consolidate in certain areas. And that works for academia in terms of ticking the box of getting the paper out there and satisfying the institution and satisfying your CV. But it doesn't help the coaching world, which is ultimately one of the things that academia is trying to affect. So that we've done research. We have this theory of how you become a footballer in my case or how talent is developed. But it's short in terms of everything that I found out that I wanted to express. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that that was quite difficult for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell me about maybe the involvement uh, in terms of football. How do you think the game has evolved around maybe this subject area and is anything that you've done or achieved within that that's contributed to the changing modification of football in in a better sense, hopefully? Yeah, well, I think it's become more open as the years have progressed. Football was very closed in the 70s and 80s, there's no doubt about that. You were a footballer, an ex-footballer became a coach or a manager and an ex-footballer quite often ran the business as well. So that's changed. There are more specifically qualified people that have come in in various areas. Um, so that has sort of led to the mushrooming of clubs. What once was an operation that might employ five, six people. I mean, for instance, when I left Manchester United, we had 270 people responsible to the sporting director in the training ground and over a, a thousand people employed by the club. So that, that changed and it warranted more specialism. And I think the global exposure as well also warranted more scrutiny and specialism and expertise. So I think probably the globalisation and the development of the game has certainly made a difference. And I think academics have probably got better. Uh, I was one of the first and the early people who went into academia who had a background in sport at reasonable level. If you look at that landscape now, there's a lot of them. Uh, and there's a lot of them practicing in the game as well. I've worked with coaches uh, and managers. I was with a manager a few weeks back, Kieran McKenna, who is now manager of Ipswich, who has a degree in sports science from Loughborough University. Uh, Eric Ramsey, one of the guys that I work with at Manchester United, set piece specialist coach at Man United, sports science degree from Loughborough University. So it's changed. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, and it's probably improved in many areas. You mentioned Manchester United. What did you learn about your, your time there? Is there anything that stands out in terms of different types of people or different types of environments or challenges, etc.? Is there anything that stands out in that? Well, my, my role, I was head of research and development. So the objective is to find out what is best practice across the world. Uh, the club has a history of success. It's one of the biggest global brands out there. And it's struggled over the last 10 years. It's nowhere near the, the performance or the business that it should be. And we can see that both with the results on the pitch, the transition and the hiring and firing of managers over 10 years, and also where it's got to in a business sense. It was way, way, way out in front. There's now anything from five to eight clubs that are jostling around it and, and jumping above it. So the good thing that I got from that is that I had to go out into the world and find out what was best and how we could improve. So I was exposed to some serious environments and some high-performing environments. That could be military. It could be somewhere such as the London School of Contemporary Dance, uh, NBA, NFL, England Cricket, Cricket Australia, businesses such as Netflix and Google. So I had a great journey looking inside these organisations and finding what made them tick and what made them tick in specific departments. Because I guess like anywhere else, you might find something that's really strong in, let's say, one club in the NBA, but they've got weaknesses in another, but those weaknesses might manifest themselves at Red Bull in their systems in 
Salzburg, Germany, New York. Uh, and then you might find something else in London School of Contemporary Dance. So that was a great, as well as a job, it was a serious education as well, an insight into high performance. Uh, so I really enjoyed getting out there. Uh, a difficult thing was implementation when it comes back into Manchester United in terms of decision-making power to be able to say, this will improve what we're doing here. Yeah. So that, that was hard. What skills do you need going into those other organisations in terms of observing and trying to learn from different cultures and different environments and trying to, again, apply that within a football environment? Is there any skills that, that stand out during that process? Yeah, and I, I think those are something that I've learned with age. Uh, humility, there's no doubt about that. Being humble to go into an organisation as a representative of a serious organisation to say, I am open to ideas, I'm here to listen, uh, I respect what you do, I respect what you've achieved, I respect where you've come from, uh, and I'd like to find out more about that, can you tell me about that? So I think you've got to be a humble person, you've also got to be able to get on, you've got to be, I mean I'd find moments where I might be at dinner with the CEO and sporting directors of Champions League winning football clubs. Uh, and then the day after, you might be with the chef or the ladies uh, and, and gents that are operating a restaurant and a home uh, where international football players or dancers actually live. Uh, and how do they interact with the prospective stars of tomorrow who could be 14, 15, 16 years of age and what are the, the challenges that they face? And I found I learned a lot of things outside the environment. So I'd go in, sometimes I could be at a place for a week, sometimes it could be a day. Um, and you observe, you see things, you ask questions. But then a lot of the key thing for me was relationships. When you, you're out for dinner with the master, or you're, you're perhaps on a journey to the train station. Because I think that's often when people switch off from the working environment. And then you sort of break down a little bit as a person. They kind of think, oh, he's all right. He's this guy. He's, he's a normal human being. He's not um, someone that you put on a pedestal that's come from Manchester United Football Club that wants serious answers. He is a human being that drinks a coffee, that eats a cake, that <laughs> watches a rock concert, that goes to a cinema. And, and once you come across... In that manner, you, you find that other people will break down and they'll give you more. And I've got a family, I've got a son, uh, and my son goes to school like everybody else. And you, you sort of relay that to them. They'll tell you their sort of life stories and their challenges in life. And then you get a greater wealth and depth of information about what you've actually gone for in the first place, which the environment and the culture. But the environment and the culture are the people. So you need to know those people, get on with them and dig into them. You said earlier that uh, sometimes it can be a challenge uh, applying some of the lessons learned from other organisations into to Manchester United. Um, why are they a challenge? And has there been cases where a little bit of a trial and error approach in terms of trying things differently to, to try and develop certain areas? Uh, I'm intrigued on how that might be a challenge in the process of applying certain things within an organisation within football? Yeah, the, there are different different reasons, really. Uh, the club has been going through transition for a long period, uh, and probably too long a period, in all honesty, in terms of where it needs to get to. So what that then sort of breeds is the, the owners probably are pulled in terms of where they're focusing and who they're focusing on, and they're focusing on too many things. So it can be difficult for any particular department to actually get an answer or get something done. So I'd probably find, well, not probably, I did find situations where I'd find something. It could be a practice, it could be a technology that you look at. It could be from a manufacturing company, it could be out of a university, it could be from another sport, another industry, that you think that is good and that will work. 
I've no doubt that that will work. And, and these are sort of rare cases because you might find 70 to 80 things before you think, mm, mm. that one's good, that one. Can you, can you give us an example of something that might work? Uh, not really, because uh. I'd, be, I'd probably be exposing no, okay, confidentiality. Yeah, 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 right. um, but what, what would happen, I'd, I mean, you paid you sort of sit at senior management level and you'd say, I, I suggest that we do that now. Uh, and what I'd find and what I've found since is that it's been done in other clubs or other organisations. So I might find something that has been done since I found it in England cricket or it's been done in Real Madrid. And that, you look back and you think, that's frustrating because I found that 20 months ago. And not only have they done it, they're now experiencing results and tangible benefits from it. So I found that hard, for want of a better word. Yeah. Uh, and that wanting to win as well, uh, it's... When you work for the football club, I was really disappointed when we finished second in the Premier League and I was really disappointed when you lose a European final on the 22nd penalty. That that hurts. Um, and I probably shared this with some of the staff there in terms of we now want to develop, want to move on, want to do it quickly. There are certain things that we want to do. And I've worked in business as well and I've worked in some high-end businesses, worked for companies such as Cisco and Avaya. So I've worked in far bigger machines than Manchester United. But it then go into sort of business world and business speak. Let's get a one-pager on it. Let's do a short-term, mid-term plan. Uh, let's sort of scope out what we really want this to look like in 2025. And you're sort of thinking, well, it's 2021 now. We're not a million miles off. We've finished second in the Premier League and just lost a European final on the 22nd penalty. Um, let's go. Let, let, let's get on with this because... It's a small step, but significant decisions to make this small step that we need to make. Yeah, uh, that that was difficult. Yeah, you mentioned Real Madrid and other football clubs, and they're implementing strategies that you might have discovered. How how is it in terms of uh, being environments around sharing information? Because of the competitive nature of of Man United against these other clubs, yeah. and you're trying to find the best solutions and the best strategies. Um, but other clubs might have certain things that they don't want to kind of share because obviously they're against Man United and they're trying to yeah. do it themselves. How do you dig out that information to to, to really understand that and, and utilise it? it? It can be difficult because uh, I remember going into one particular high-performing football club. I went around three, four departments. They'd share certain things and I went in one particular department and it was a complete brick wall. Uh, and, and this was in the realms of artificial intelligence. Uh, and they've performed really well since then as well. Uh, and there was no way that they were going to share how they were speeding up the quantification and crunching of data towards decision-making, both from a business perspective and performance. Um, so what you then do as a researcher, I started to look at the people to think, right, well, this is the person and this is the lady that I've been in front of here. Most people have got a social media profile or a background, so... Where have they been? Who have they spoke to? Where did they work previously? What institutions have they come? People give away things on timelines, what airport they're travelling through, what city they're at, uh, whereabouts they are in that city. And sometimes you can narrow it down and you think, bang, they've been there. They've been at that sporting organisation. So I'd make those type of calls, I'd drop those types of emails in, and they weren't always successful, but believe you and me, two or three times, I hit the nail on the head and I tripped over exactly what I was looking for. And then you will start to get into it. Some people are just open and they'll tell you and you can piece two and two together and then work out what it is or was that that sporting organisation were doing and how they were doing it. Uh, sometimes you don't get half a tail, uh, but again, that would sort of lead the investigation process down another alley because you've got to try and find that answer. Uh, and that was good. He, I remember uh, it was Oli Gunnar actually, and he, he sort of said, you are our detective. Uh, you, you're sort of out there. And then a couple of the other staff actually called me Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> <laughs> 
which was quite uh, entertaining at the time. But uh, I, I found that really yeah. enjoyable in all honesty. It was a bit of a sort of Mission Impossible sometimes. You, I don't look like him, but you felt like Tom Cruise <laughs> when you, you're thrown out there to try and find the solution. Um, in terms of that then, so are you in a position where you can never really sit still? Are you always trying to look for the next best thing? Yeah. And can that become a little bit of a challenge in terms of you com- you're consistently hopping to try and improve, try and improve? Did you ever find yourself in that kind of rut a little bit? Does that become a little bit of a challenge to, to always try and find the next best thing? And It does. And, and then just maybe that focusing on what you actually have achieved. I'm, I'm just intrigued on that, that process as, I, I like, as a journey. Yeah, and that, that's a great question. And I like to move quickly. And, I, and I've done this with a few organisations. And I, I have a history of it as well. When I worked in the tech and the IT sectors, yeah, I was one of the first people in the world to install what was what is now known as a voice over IP system. So many years ago, businesses had a telephone system and a computer network. They're completely separate. Now they all run through the same server, uh, mainframe, whatever you want to call it. And I remember wanting to do this. It was a finance company. And it was sort of, right, wow, so I'm going to get rid of the phone system and it's going to go through my data network which is a daily challenge to maintain. And not only that, it's going to communicate across sites. And when it communicates across sites, those calls are going to be free over the internet. And you can connect mobile devices to it as well. So if someone rings a mobile device from the office, it actually goes a mobile to mobile call. So I was sort of in this world 20 years ago and companies were going, oh, I can't take that risk if my phone system goes down. But now it's the norm. Every single company <laughs> in the world has these systems. And things such as email, I was an early embracer of that, sort of, I'll send someone an email. All oh, right, well, why would you do that when we can send them a fax or oh, you can send them a letter? And it's sort of, well, yeah, we can still do both, but there will be a world ultimately where it's just email that is going to and through us. If we embrace that now, that gives us an advantage as a, as a business before the others. Uh, similar with things such as social media. Um, think in sport, things such as heart rate monitors, uh, performance analysis. Right in the early days, I sort of had cameras and then you're relaying video back and, and probably what you'd call coding now, but manually thinking, right, there are the forwards bits at minute one, five, 25. Here are the defenders bits. And just through basic Windows editing software, chopping up video. Yeah. So I've always had this history of looking for an edge. Yeah. You know, be trainers, things like that. Uh, you remember the Predator football boots? Yeah. David Beckham. Yeah wore them, Craig Johnston manufactured them uh, and they cost a fortune at the time. I think I'll get some of that. I want to see what they do. Apparently they make the ball spin, they make it bend, it better for... <laughs> so I've always had that inquisition uh, of how you can make things better, yeah. faster and and steal an edge or an advantage yeah. on someone. Yeah. Is there, is there anyone that stands out in terms of uh, like a mentor or anyone that you work with that has inspired you to, to go down that route? You mentioned, obviously, your own intrinsic drive and that edged. But in, in those environments, football environments, you mentioned other organisations. Is there anyone that stands out in terms of a good leadership and mentoring skills that you've, you've taken away and applied within your own practice? There are people, I, I have a, a big interest uh, in art and music. And yeah, I've always been to pop rock concerts since I was sort of 14, 15. I'm always fascinated how artists stay current because they've got a, you might get an album that's number one, it sells millions across the globe, but you're then under pressure from yourself and sort of your management or whatever, or the fans that are demanding it to make another album and another record. And when you look back at careers of people such as, I don't know, the Rolling Stones, you too, recently went to see Depeche Mode, who's been going for years. They're evolving all the time. The, the music's changing. There are different instruments being coming in. There are different cultures that are influencing the music that they're writing or they're playing. And I've always sort of taken that 
in, into the sports world really how does it how does it change how how do we progress how do we do the next thing so as a, as opposed to mentors there are probably certain people that have followed and thought that's brave this is this is an off the wall album that you've just created here and that might inspire me not to create something musically but to look at something else in sport you know things how does a football boot change they were made of leather they had metal studs on the bottom you pick a football boot up now and if you had your eyes closed you probably wouldn't even know you had it in your hand with that light uh, but that someone somewhere has made that difference yeah interesting and how you can kind of relate other fields into it's obviously the sporting world and leadership and management you mentioned the word evolve I think that's kind of the key yeah you know people such as you know James Dyson uh, Steve Jobs people like this they, yeah. they just you look at the first Apple device and you look at the plethora of machinery that's around us now they're just constantly pushing so I always I read things like that so I probably go outside my world yeah Really, I mean, I listened to a podcast recently with Ben Francis, the owner of Gymshark. Yeah. Again, fascinating how he's grown, how he's developed, how he's become self-aware, how he's gone to another level, but how he's changed the the culture of his company, the, the way that products are manufactured, distributed. So I'm, I'm never really afraid of change. Yeah, interesting. So on that, um, in terms of your element of wanting to think outside the box and you mentioned your sales backgrounds did that yeah. did that collaboration impact you to develop sensible soccer and the business side and bringing some um business elements to to your to your profile how did that come about i'm intrigued on how that process worked yeah um interesting it's a company that i set up with mike Feeland uh, around about six years ago now uh, and at the time We'd both been working at Hull City uh, and we started doing bits of coaching in the community, uh, in schools, that type of thing, just because we enjoyed it, really. And a lot of people who've come out of football don't want anything to do with football or want to get straight back into the professional game. But it was quite refreshing to sort of do things, him from a coach's and a player's perspective, to pass things back down but me to pass things to sort of school children who might aspire to be sports scientists, coaches, psychologists, analysts, etc. So we started doing that in the education setting. And one of the things that we found is that the equipment everywhere was very ad hoc, uh, disposable and some of it of low quality. And we're approached by a couple of companies to represent them really so you're out there you've got a face you've got an audience would you sell our equipment so we did and we set up a company that sold two manufacturers equipment one was samba who were quite a well-known goal and ball manufacturer another another company called quick play so we we partnered with two other people who had expertise in marketing and web design to resell other people's equipment but then quickly wanted to actually manufacture and design our own equipment because mainly through Mike's name in football circles, we had manufacturers from all over the world sending us balls, goals, bibs, cones. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, 80-90% of it was rubbish. It was a bib that would just fall apart. It was a cone that wasn't even round. It was a ball that would deflate or again wasn't even round. And you think, this can't be right because some of this is going into schools it's getting in kids hands and that's not ethical yeah, yeah. in all honesty uh, and we're both earning a living out of football anyway so we're in a position where we could set up a business that had no investors uh, no demand from any banks or anything like that and we didn't earn, need to earn a living from so we could grow it in an ethical manner, manner to be able to supply what works for grassroots clubs uh, and we'd come from grassroots you know many years ago and it's hard earned you, you go in the grassroots world there's people in the clubhouse after passing a card round trying to name the team that wins to raise 20 quid 
you've got kids filling bags in supermarkets, you're trying to get local businesses to sponsor. So it's hard come by money that can often be spent on inadequate equipment. So that was the sort of catalyst and inspiration really for setting up a business. Um, and it grew. You, you then, we, we talked earlier about technology, you think, well, let's get social media profile uh, let's start to put things out there and the brand started to grow uh, we started to manufacture our own equipment uh, we got investment from a company called Findel Education who have got a great legacy they're over 100 years old been in the education sector supplying to schools for a long period of time uh, and we've now got to a point where the business has actually been acquired by Findel Education and uh, Throughout that journey, we employed people as well as the business started to grow. Um, but it made sense to put it into Findel Education um, because they had the same ethos as us, the same ethics as us, but on a larger scale. Uh, and not only did they supply sports equipment, they supply everything that's in a school, exercise books, chairs, plasticine, you name it, your tip of school upside down, everything that falls out, they supply. And... Uh, so we've now gone in with them uh, and what we're also doing is helping them develop their business to go to the next level. So we're now helping them in terms of the technology, the future of sport. They mainly supply to the primary sector. We're looking at pushing that towards the college sector, the university sector, the independent schools. And we're building education with it as well. So if you buy basketball equipment, cricket equipment, dance equipment, football equipment, we're now in, in a period which is going to take us about another six to nine months where we'll, we're recording uh, both podcasts and vodcasts uh, and online content in terms of what is best practice for talent development or PE or sports engagement in dance to take a subject for six and seven-year-olds. What does football look like for 10 and 11 year olds? What does rugby look like for the talented people? So we're pairing the two together, really, the equipment and the knowledge. And we think that we've created something quite unique in terms of supply chain and supply of products with intelligence that comes with it. Hmm. Do you, in terms of what you said then, so you, you said um, we come from the grassroots community yeah. and, and you mentioned, I think that's a key element in terms of what you said. Do you feel like you had to kind of, there was a point that you kind of wanted to give back to the community and, and through an opportunity such as this, it's something that's intrinsically drove you towards oh, this area? Definitely, without a doubt. You're at, you can see grassroots players, you see some good ones that go into academies uh, and become professional footballers. That That's probably the easy bit. Uh, and, and that happens because the player's good. You don't really... There's hundreds of podcasts and people out there talking about the coaching process, talent development. I'm a firm believer that athletes make themselves right. uh, with the support of a family behind them. Um, but what I've also seen, and I, I worked here at UCFB, uh, as you know, for a number of years, and I mentored a few people. Uh, if I, I can name a couple. Amy O'Connor, who's now married, Amy Walter, uh, Ross Duncan, Thomas Friesmuth, Alice Kelk who've gone into the industry and are now stable professionals in the football industry, who came here to UCFB with a dream. Uh, they were shy, they were probably quite reserved, they probably didn't really know what they wanted to do or what they were capable of. And I take great pleasure in being someone who was there for them to help guide them and to help create opportunities for them and, and then they've gone on a bit like I've just discussed about the footballers to sort of take that little injection of adrenaline that I might have given them to then create themselves and create their own success in the worlds that they're now in. And, you know, I came from grassroots and I came from not doing very well at school to be at senior management at one of the biggest football clubs in the world. So I know that this is doable for the normal person on the street but I don't think the entirety of the people on the street possibly believe that until you relay that back to them. So I think that's one of the things that probably gives me most pride and and, and sort of gives you that warm inside feeling when you 
you see someone progress or you, you see a student where a teacher might come out, it could be a 14, 15 year old saying, they're a good kid, but we've been struggling with them of late, but you've just given some real impetus. He's not stopped asking questions about maths and analytics in sport since you came to talk to us six months ago. So that's uh, that's quite pleasing. Mm. Just just on what you mentioned around education, and you're in a position now where you can start using um, kit and then informing and educating. Why is there is there a frustration of limited knowledge there already? Because we've got you know curriculums in place. Yeah. Mentioned kit comes in different sizes and it's not made properly. I can imagine that's frustrating going into the industry and recognizing that. People aren't learning effectively or, or efficiently within the area of PE or sport. It is. There are little things. I mean, to give you an example, you can get a hurdle. And we've all seen hurdles, which you run over, you jump over, you walk over. Uh, but hurdles come in different sizes. And I've seen, I've been into a primary school where you've got a four or five-year-old that's got a hurdle that's this high. You know, straight away you're thinking there's going to be yeah. damage here physiologically because they're on the wrong hurdle. And that might be typically in a primary school or an infant school, because it's not a sports specialist uh, who wants to buy some things with the right intentions of having fun and giving the kids an education, but aren't quite sure what or why mm. they buy in what they buy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, simple little things like that. The number of infant schools I've been in, and I've seen a bag of size four or size five footballs, the football's literally coming up to the child's knee. Um now, we sort of, there are guidelines out there that this age requires a size three. That's quite simplistic. Why? What are the benefits of that? What does a size three do as opposed to a size five? And what are the dangers of using the larger bottle or the larger hurdle? And particularly in the primary sector, there are a lack of sports teachers. It is one where it does happen to be someone that's somewhere else in the curriculum, maths, English, art, history or whatever, that has a love of sport, but not wholly qualified in it, that's taken upon themselves to provide that and deliver it. Mm. And I think the pressure as well on teachers in general is immense in terms of what they've got to deliver. I think it's, a, it's an area we could, we could talk about. I can go down a different avenue in terms of government strategies and funding, etc. One thing that I was going to ask on, on top of what you said was um, you mentioned earlier that you like to continue to involve as a person yeah. and, and you recognise sport and how that can involve. Where do, you, where do you see sport and football going in the future to kind of predict where it might um, outline you mentioned the word AI and artificial intelligence yeah. and other facets that could be apparent you mentioned different technologies and different tools where do you see this going is, is, is there something that you can see in terms yeah, of where uh, might go? you can and I've seen things before and like I said earlier the things that I saw that I recommend at Manchester United that I know that are in other sporting organisations so the things such as virtual reality uh, I think that's a good tool it's still developing it, it's still growing uh, <laughs> It is in uh, lots of football clubs, uh, lots of other sports, but it will go into different departments and be more beneficial as it grows. Artificial intelligence as well, in terms of what we're gathering, why we're gathering it, will it inform business decisions, will it inform recruitment decisions? We, we're pretty good in terms of player performance, how many times they receive the ball, where did they pass it, did they pass it forward, did they pass it backwards, did they retain possession? What's the data like in a standard Premier League game? What's it like in a Champions League game or a top six game? Is there a difference? How do you value a player? What we're now starting to pick up, and there's a fantastic researcher out there, Norwegian chap called Gears Jordi, uh, psychological characteristics of players. How does a player interact with his teammates, with the crowd, under certain pressures? What body language did they give? What language did they use? Is it positive? Is it negative? Does it change? And is there any sort of particular flux contextual to the demands on them, the pressure they're in? Does it also change with personnel on the field? So they could be with player A, B, C in one match on Saturday. They could be playing with B, C, F and Y in another match on Tuesday. Does that player's behaviour change? Yeah. So that that's something. That, yeah, I mean... Top-level players are costing around about £65 million. Five, ten-year contract if you go into Chelsea. 
So the investment could be quarter of a billion pounds uh, on a football player. Some more information required. I saw something digital twinning uh, where you can you can replicate an environment. So we probably saw a lot of this in COVID where we, we look at the news and it's kind of right in a particular area. Three more people have been infected. So therefore, if X number of people go into that area, this is what's going to happen and this is where it's going to go next. So you could see how the movement of a population w- would change and what would happen contextual to what was going on. So in football, you might have, let's say we're playing Manchester City. Manchester City changed their formation and the way they played slightly over the last six, eight games of the season uh, as they'd gone on to sort of, you saw the John Stone centre-back literally as a midfielder almost contributing right alongside the number 10 at some point. So traditionally, what happens in a football environment is a manager might think, right, Manchester City have changed slightly. So we've taken them on before in a 4-4-2. Uh, do I go 4-4-1-1? Do I go 4-3-3? And what would often happen is they'd look at video, they might then take the players out onto the training ground and over an hour and a half actually practice three different formations. What you can now do in the digital twinning world, because you've got the characteristics of your players playing in these formations, so if you're using Marcus Rashford, there's enough mirror detail of him playing down the middle, left and right. So you could slot all the particular players in to several variations of how we might play against Manchester City's new system. And the computer, a bit like we saw with the COVID dots moving around, will give you a theory in terms of what would happen or whether that player might be successful or not. So what that then translates into is the coaches can look at this. So you're then perhaps not going onto a training ground and trying three different formations. You've got a fair idea that one is going to be better than the other two. So you can go down there and rehearse that particular formation, 11 v 11, walk through analysis, whatever it may be. But then as a psychologist, you get the sense that what the players have got is quite concrete. So it's we've seen that. We've got the evidence for it. We've practiced that. We're going to stick to that. That's how we go in. We believe in it and we'll play. Whether they'll win the game or not is a different question. But the feeling of that player having gone through that process is one of commitment. The feeling of a player that perhaps on a Friday walked through three formations and then plays one on a Saturday, there's always a what if because the second one, in my head, might have worked or this is the manager's or the coach's fault because yesterday they didn't know what they were doing because we tried three formations and they've gone with this one. And there's further development in this particular world. There's no doubt about that, but you can see it coming. Yeah. Because it made the coach redundant then in a way in terms of picking the team because you've got this computer that would do that, right? Um, it probably streamlines the workflow rather than makes them redundant because you still need a leader who's going to commit to it. Uh, you don't have to take the decision because sometimes it might, as we know, science and computers don't always give you an answer. It might crunch everything and sort of say there isn't an answer here. So then the coach and gut feeling probably comes back into play. And what I've always found with coaches as well, especially working with experienced ones, What they see with their eyes is more often than not correct. Uh, And my business partner, Mike Phelan, is 61 years of age and he's watched more football matches than you would care to shake a stick at. And the number of players that he sort of said three, four years ago, that player is top quality. And they've ended up at the top. Mm. But it's been done on two or three watches of the player. What the modern system does is collect data. You don't have data until you've got historical performance. Yeah, yeah. So it's when does data turn into a strike point? Yeah, yeah. Is it 40 watches? Is it 60? Yeah. Is it 100 watches, but 100 watches that has been watched by four different people? And then we put it into a system of quantitative and qualitative information to come out with a recommendation. 
The problem for me with that, when you get to that point, every other club has also got the same information. So it then literally becomes a price war. So the identification of talent, I'm not sure that modern data metrics and collection is finding some of it as early as you'd possibly like to, where you might be able to get that player for five, six million pound instead of paying a lot of money. You know, the Arabia money. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's an example that's out there in the public domain. Uh, Solskjaer came back to England and he spoke recently and he talked about Haaland. He had Haaland as a player and he knew, and this this is an ex-striker that's talking about striker that's going to be a top world-class player back in the day where the price of that player was probably around about a million pounds. Mm-hmm. Lots of clubs collected the data on him and ultimately the price of the transfer fee and the contract is I don't know, probably quarter of a billion pounds. Interesting. Interesting how that might play out. And uh, as your time will tell with that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, probably going back to the the question, I don't think the humans will be redundant. Uh, I, I, I think in some degrees there are certain humans that probably deserve a little bit more respect sometimes we quite we live in a society where we want the next best thing so that can be the next the youngest coach the data coach the sports science coach the analytics coach uh, you know and Allardyce was laughed at recently and I sort of understand why but it was sort of I'm at the top I'm better than anyone I'm better it probably came across wrong in the wrong context because he, he was in a bit of a Odd situation with three games to go to transfer of a Premier League club, but if you were to sit down and have a football conversation with Sam Allardyce, and there'd be other people out there, Bielsa, I mentioned Mike Field and Alex Ferguson, Roy Hodgson, uh, who have some serious knowledge about football players or tactics, and, and I've sat in the company of these type of people before, who've said, this young kid is good yeah. or that team's going to be good and then 18 months later every top club's in and all the papers are reporting the data behind it yeah I suppose it's that instinctive nature that we might underestimate through these new tools and, and recognising talent yeah using the eyes you know in terms of what you said these experienced people yeah, checking the yeah, absolutely you know and I think what one of the the sort of detriments or things that stop in that is there's no evidence behind it it's sort of there is a man who's 70 years old who's watched 40,000 football matches he's not recorded it there isn't a spreadsheet there's no evidence <laughs> there's no artificial intelligence that's climbing inside his head uh, but it's there yeah. and I, I tend to find that these people probably a bit like myself I'm not quite there yet I'm 51 but I, I think you get more honest the older you get, yeah. and, and you've less to perhaps prove, you, you just will see yeah. what you see and say what you feel. Well, that kind of leads me to the final question, Dave. And my, what I tend to do with my guests is get them to, to reflect back or, or look forward. I'm going to get you to look forward. So when the time comes when you, you want to put your feet up and retire and... Yeah. chill out and do whatever it is that you do if it's rock concerts or whatever it is that you want to do in, t- in your spare time when you, you've got your time off what would you like your legacy to be is there anything that stands out in terms of what you want to achieve um, I, or, I always, or already have achieved I, I like how you people, want to be remembered I like people to sort of think of me as an honest person who tried hard okay. who, who gives everything to what they're trying to do or what they're trying to provide Um. And there are, there are things that I'd like to do as well. I, I have a 10-year-old son, so he's got to go on his journey through life, whether that's in sport, whether it's in university or in business, who knows, but support him to be the best he can possibly be. And then I'd like to get to a point where, yes, I do retire. <laughs> uh, I play golf. I don't play golf as well as I would like to, so okay. I'd like to get a single-figure golf handicap. And I'd like to learn to play musical instruments yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, so there are certain things that I have interest in that I've not had time to do simply because you're pushing to get to the top in yeah. the field that you're in. And those are the things that you've got to sometimes sacrifice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Where can listeners or viewers find you, Dave, if they're inspired by your conversation? Where can they find you? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on social media. So I have a LinkedIn profile. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Horrocks David. Uh, and I, I accept DMs. Uh, we spoke to each other over LinkedIn yeah. via a mutual uh, contact. And I understand that the next generation, that can be the way forward or the initial contact for them. Uh, and I'm open to helping people if I can. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people can message me. We'll put the link to your page in the description so if anyone wants to contact you. Yeah, that'd be great. Click on that. Um, Fire, I just want to thank you for, for joining uh, the podcast today. Your, your conversation and, and, and what we spoke about out of conversation as well has been inspiring. And uh, I just want to wish you all the best with your company and whatever it is that you thank continue you. to do. Um, and thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.